And this morning we are going to continue our study through the Minor Prophets. Last week we did not have Sunday school, but the week before that we were blessed by one of our TES students, um, Adam Smith, who gave us a summary of the book of Micah. And it was just uh, encouraging for me to be able to see Aaron and, I mean, yeah, Aaron and uh, his uh, training just displayed for us to see as far as how he handled the scripture. It was definitely an encouragement. This morning, we are going to be spending time in the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament canon. canon. So please take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Malachi. This morning, we're not necessarily going to be doing a survey through this book. Uh, More or less, we are going to try to focus on what is the main message of the prophet of Malachi. What is the main message that God is speaking through him? And we're going to be spending time just kind of going through some of the main themes that help build up that message. And at the end, we're going to be spending some time with some just takeaways. How do we apply this message to ourselves, us today, a people that's in the church long time, great distant of time since Malachi? How do we apply this to us? The prophet Malachi, he proclaimed the word of God to a people that we would like to say just kind of in our own modern language that we're just in a spiritual slump. Their lives was just, before God, their worship, they were just kind of not feeling it. They were in this slump. And the Christian life, our spiritual walk, many times is full of peaks and valleys. Life is full of trials and struggles, and those trials and struggles are meant to make us more like Christ— but many times, due to our own sinful nature, it actually causes, causes us to go into these spiritual slumps. Many times, life gets hard. And when life gets hard, our sinful hearts exposes itself with self-pity and selfishness. And our walk with Christ just gets derailed instead of strengthened. This is something that we have all experienced. And I'm sure many of us, have had conversations with each other, us discipling and encouraging one, one another in the Lord, where the conversation goes something kind of like this. A dear brother, sister in Christ comes up and says, I'm really struggling right now. My walk is, my walk is struggling. I'm in a spiritual slump. I'm feeling distant from God. And of course, usually the question is, well, well why? You know, how, how did this happen? And the response usually goes something like, well, life has been hard lately. It's been hard. I'm just not not feeling close to God. I'm just really struggling right now. And then many times the other person says, well, how is your prayer life? How is your time in the word? And usually the response is something kind of like, well, not great. It's, It's kind of been busy lately. It's kind of been busy. I've kind of been distracted. Now, all of us, have had those conversations. In fact, all of us has been on both sides of those conversations. And thank God that we're able to have those with each other in the church and we are able to encourage one another in the Lord and strengthen our walk with Christ. What a blessing it is to be able to be together to where we can have those conversations. And like I said, all of us has been on each side of those. However, here's a conversation that I've never had, that I've never been on either side of. And it is... When somebody brings up, hey, I'm struggling, and you say, why? Why are you struggling? And they say, well, I guess it's because I actually despise the Lord. 
I despise the Lord. I'm unhappy with the circumstances that he's allowed me to go through. I'm unhappy with him. And because of that, you know what? I'm dishonoring him by the way that I live. Now, if somebody was to say that, our concern for them would go to a 10, right? I mean, we would be very, very concerned. We'd be running around trying to find one of our pastors and say, this person needs help. We need to help them. However, when you take that radical response and you match it up to, you take the radical response of, oh, well, I despise the Lord, and match it up with, eh, I'm just kind of in this spiritual slump. I'm just kind of not living rightly right now. Which one of those people would actually have a better outlook of, their tr- of the true condition of their spiritual walk at that moment, the true condition of their heart? It may be the one who radically says, I despise the Lord, that might have a better outlook of that. And in the book of Malachi, God is speaking through the prophet of Malachi, and he addresses a devastating spiritual slump that the people are in. And I hate to even use that phrase, spiritual slump, by the way. It's, it's language that we use, right, to make even, even kind of soften the, the, different, uh, the different struggles that we go through. And the reality is, is the audience in Malachi's day that he, that he speaks to, they had developed a low view of God, which had led them to a dishonoring life that a life that dishonored him. They dishonored them with the way they lived, with the way they worshiped. Their view of God was causing them to dishonor him by the way that they lived. And as we've been talking about from the Minor Prophets, there's a great distance between us and these Old Testament Israelites, Judeans of that day. But this problem of sinful hearts straying away from God that is something that is very near to us. And we have a lot to learn from the book of Malachi. But before we dive in the book, I want to give just a little bit of background to help give us some better just clarity of the message of Malachi. And I want to start off with just where we find Malachi, just where is the date of Malachi? And unlike many other letters, that is significant to give you a context of the people he's speaking to, but especially for this book, it is significant to know when this was written. And the timing of this letter was written post-exile. And what I mean by that is it was after the Babylonian exile where they were carried away in punishment. And many of the books of the prophets were centered around calling Israel to repentance due to their idolatry. Many times the prophets, it was calling them to repentance because because of their idolatry, there was punishment coming. There was destruction coming. And that destruction was coming by them being conquered by foreign nations. And as you know, the nation of Israel did not heed the word of God and what the Lord promised would happen, happened. They were destroyed. In 1722, the northern kingdoms of Israel was carried away into Assyrian captivity. And later, the southern kingdom of Judah in 582 was carried away to Babylon, to the Babylonian captivity, as we like to, to say. Now, God promised this would happen. But he also made another promise to the southern kingdom of Judah. He promised that one day they would actually come back They would actually come back to the land and be back in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happened. In in 539, the first set of exiles came back to the land 
started construction of rebuilding the city. In 516, the second temple was rebuilt. And that's very significant because in the book of Micah, Malachi rather, um, they are back in the temple. They are sacrificing, which meant it happened after that time. Another significant thing that kind of points us to the timing is if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, they are dealing with some of the same issues that happen in the time of Malachi that he's addressing. So many commentators think that this was written sometime like 460, 470 BC, sometime around the reforms of Nehemiah, maybe even preparing their hearts for the reforms in Nehemiah. And the reason why this is important, this is important because the destruction of Jerusalem was for these people of this day, the people that Malachi are writing to, it was not some just prophetic possibility that we hear these prophets talking about may or may not happen. It was a devastating reality. Their lives had been completely shaped by these horrific horrific events of captivity. And yet... They also were able to witness God keeping his promise of bringing them back into the land, back to sacrificing to him. And so this time was a time of reform. It was a time of rejoicing. They are back in the land sacrificing to Yahweh. God had used the time of the exile to purge them from their idolatry. And now they are sacrificing to Yahweh and are no longer dabbling in these foreign gods, these idols. So this was a time of rejoicing. However, in all this, something happened over time. Things were not okay. You almost get this illustration of a spouse, an unfaithful spouse in a marriage who leaves the other one, but then comes back and there's forgiveness, and there's rejoicing. But then over time, that unfaithful spouse, even though they are back in the home, starts treating the other one just coldly, with contempt. It's almost get this picture of sitting there just watching TV, looking out of the corner of their eye, thinking, I'm just not very happy because of who I'm with. And that was kind of a picture of Judah during this day of Malachi. They were starting to look at God with contempt because of their circumstances. And they were, they were developing actual, they were starting to despise the Lord and how he dealt with them. So what happened? Lots of things happened, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but if you just sum it up, life happened. Just life. The problem struggles with life. And when they came back, even though this was a thing to rejoice of, their, their kingdom was nowhere near its former glory. The temple was nowhere close to Solomon's temple. In fact, they were still under Persian control, allowed to come back to the land, and they had become this fringe providence within just the vast empire of Persian control, vast empire of Persia. And they themselves were mostly poor. They had little resources, and they had little influence, nothing like their former glory under the Davidic kingdom, under Solomon. And it was these circumstances that ignited selfishness over time that turned their joy to contempt for the Lord. They had developed a low view of God, which had led to a corrupted lifestyle and corrupted worship of him. And they were dishonoring him by the way that they lived. 
And due to their sin, God's covenant relationship with them was was fractured. And through the prophet of Malachi, God brings clarity to their false views of him, but that he also calls out their corrupted lifestyles and their corrupted ways of worshiping him. And the way, the way Malachi is kind of broken up, it's broken up into, many commentators bring it up, break it up into six admonishments of just the Lord exposing their sin He exposes their sin, but also tells them and warns them of the implications of their sin. What's going to happen because of this? And I wish we had time to go through all six of those sections. And studying this, I would love to preach all six of these sections someday. But this morning, we don't have time for that. This morning, we're just going to focus on the main message, but we're also going to focus on some themes that make up this message of of Malachi. And to understand... Malachi's message, there needs to be an understanding that the one true God is a relational God. He has a relationship with his people. And the main concern of Malachi's message to Judah was their fractured relationship with God. Their relationship was fractured because they were dishonoring him because of their view of him. They had a low view of God that led to corrupt worship practices. And so the purpose of of God's message through Malachi was to give just clarifying assessments to his relationship with his covenant people, which had been fractured due to their disobedience. They were dishonoring the name of God through their worship and how they lived because, once again, they had a low view of God. And as God's covenant people, this was dangerous because as We've been covering it through the minor prophets. Going against God as God's covenant people brings what? Covenant curses. But on the other hand, living in obedience to him brings covenant blessings. They knew this, and yet they still rejected him. They were in great danger of this. So within God's clarifying assessments, there are several major themes of this, of this book that I want to cover. And the first theme is found in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, which, is dishon- which the first theme is a dishonoring view of God's love. So if you could please turn to just verse 1, chapter 1. And the first theme is, is a dishonoring view of God's love. Micah, Malachi starts out, the oracle, of the, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Isaiah through Malachi, I have loved you says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? So God starts off making this assertion of the reality of his love for these people. And here, the creator of the universe, the holy God of the universe that created everything, is proclaiming his love for these people. And as people of dust, what better situation to be in? then be the object of God's love. And with that reality, with that realization, like fingernails on a chalkboard, he exposes their hearts by adding, but you say, how have you loved us? These people are God's covenant people. They are back in the land. They have a new temple. They are back with God, and yet they are questioning God's love. And God exposes his heart issue, but he adds clarity 
by responding to their questioning of him. So it's one of those things, I mean, this is such an indictment against God. Well, how have you loved us? I mean, it doesn't even deserve an answer, but out of God's grace, he gives an answer, and he continues. He replies by saying, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And yet, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, it's really interesting how he proclaims his love by, I proclaimed, I love this one person, but I hate this other person. Now, many of you know the story of Jacob and Esau back in Genesis chapter 25. These are, two, these are two sons, twin brothers of Isaac, direct, direct grandsons of Abraham. And as the story goes, even though Esau was older, Jacob became the line of Israel, the line of Christ even. But it was not due to one was more righteous than the other. These were both actually wicked men. And yet, through God's sovereignty, he chose Jacob to be the line of his chosen people. It was his sovereign decision that made that happen. Now, God talking about Jacob and Esau here, he is actually not necessarily talking about those two men, but he is actually talking about two nations. He's talking about Israel that came from, came from Jacob, and then also Edom, which came from Esau. Now, these... These two nations have a history of warring with one another, of, of being great enemies. And there are several times in Scripture where God actually promises that he is going to punish Edom. Now, based on what we read here in Malachi, this has actually already happened. We don't know the details, but as he goes on to explain that Edom's land had become desolate, a wilderness, it has been destroyed. God has kept his promise on that. And here in Malachi, he even says, if they rebuild, I'm going to destroy it. He is going to punish Israel's enemies because of who he is. And even if they try to rebuild, God is not going to have it. He is going to destroy. And the implication of this verse is in verse 5. Look down at verse 5 with me. He says, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. So they should be able to look at God's dealing with these other foreign nations, enemies of Israel, and they should be able to say, glory to God, honor his name because of what he's done. Let the Lord be magnified, as it says. And he will be magnified because of how he has dealt with Israel, but also how he has dealt with their, uh, her enemies. And the people are back in the land of Jerusalem because God allowed that, and he is sovereign outside of the borders of Jerusalem. He is sovereign over all the nations, and they should have trusted him and given him glory because of that. And as God points out, his sovereign choice of them, he is sovereign over his love for them, but also he's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over other nations, and you can trust in him. Yahweh is not con- just confined to the borders of Jerusalem and they should have seen that and given him honor because of that so God is in just these few verses exposes just their dishonoring view of his love which is a huge indictment against him actually questioning the love of God who had chosen these people to be his own possession but that's not all in this letter that wasn't the only thing they questioned him and another theme And this letter is a dishonoring view of God's justice. If you could turn to chapter 2, verse 17 with me. Chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to be flipping back and forth quite a bit during 
during our time together. In chapter 2, verse 17, God speaks to them again. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, and yet you say, how have we wearied him? And he explains, and that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? So once again, he makes an assertion of, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And how have they wearied him? By saying that the holy God of the universe is what? Unjust. He is not a God of justice. And it's not just that they're saying, well, he's indifferent to evil. He just kind of turns a blind eye to it. It's even worse than that. They're actually saying that he approves of evil, that he delights in evil. So they are, so the people of Jerusalem, they're looking around, they're seeing all the evil around them, even probably their, even their own evil, and their conclusion to all of this is that if it's not being stopped, God, God must be for it. He must be a God who approves evil the holy God of the universe, the one who has chosen them, and they have a rich history of being God's people. They are saying God is a God who approves evil. He delights in evil. Now, it's really interesting, but there is a theme of God pouring out covenantal curses upon these people for their disobedience. I mean, their life is due to how they actually live. It's their own fault. And yet, they are turning and blaming God. And these unjust people are demanding justice. It's almost like a thief who cannot stand the thought of being stolen from, a liar who cannot stand that somebody would bring them something that's untrue. They are an unjust people who demand justice. This is a terrible accusation to the holy God. And yet, God gives a response to this. And God's response to this is that he is going to send a messenger. And that this, mess- this messenger is going to have a very important job. Look down, look, down, uh, look down later in the passage here. He says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear a way before me. And the Lord whom you speak will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So who is this messenger? This messenger that is going to prepare a way for the Lord coming to the temple. The Lord that they are seeking, the Lord that they are waiting for, who is this messenger? In us today, having a complete canon, Old Testament, New Testament, we don't have to guess about this. And we know just through, through Jesus' own account in Matthew 11.10 that this messenger is John the Baptist. In Matthew 10.11, Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist And he says that John is the one that is written of, and then he quotes this passage of, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. The messenger is John the Baptist, who is going to prepare a way for the Lord. And so, since that's John the Baptist, and we can only conclude that the Lord in whom he is talking about is Christ, the Messiah. Now, The Messiah is not mentioned by name in this passage, but this is clearly messianic language. He talks about the Lord. He's talking about someone who is divine. He is talking about almost God sending God, the Lord used for Yahweh. 
And justice, going back to they were questioning the justice of God, justice was not happening in the way or timing which they saw fit, and God's response to that is, I'm going to send the Lord whom you speak, and he is going to be the one who makes things right. He is going to be the one that brings justice. He goes on explaining what the Messiah is going to do, and in summary, one day the Messiah will purify God's people. And not only that, he will divide the righteous and the wicked. He will expose the wicked. And then one day the wicked will be judged. So God has a plan for this. And yet they were looking at God and saying, "Eh, he doesn't have a plan. He He must just be okay with evil. He must accept evil. And yet he is a God of justice. And he has a plan of how justice is going to be carried out and it is going to be ultimately decided when his son comes back. He is a God of justice. So just a little bit of a summary, just within our time so far, they had questioned God's love and they had questioned God's justice. They had developed this low view of God, but that's not just it. It wasn't just their thinking was wrong, but their thinking caused them to live in a wrong way. Their low view of God had caused them to live in a dishonoring way and worship in a dishonoring way of God. So this leads to our second theme of dishonoring worship. And turn back to chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 6 with me. Chapter 1, verse 6. And I'll go ahead and read it for you. God says through Malachi, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. And he says, O priest who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? So God, so the Lord starts off by exposing them for they are not giving him honor. And it's really interesting. He uses the term master, which he is. He is Lord. But he also uses Father, once again, this is relational language. He has a relationship with these people as their father, and they are not giving him honor as father or even master over them. And here, this is a problem that is going throughout all of the region. It's all the people that's doing this, but he specifically calls out their leaders. He specifically calls out the Levitical priest. And Judah's leaders were not just indifferent to the Lord, but as he says, they actually despised him through the way that they worshipped. And as he cries out, O priest who despise my name, and once again he exposes their heart of what they're really thinking. And he says, but you say, how have we despised your name? You get this picture of the Holy One of the universe, the righteous judge, pointing out to them, showing them their fault, and they're just kind of shrugging their shoulders, being like, eh, I don't get what you're talking about. I mean, this is bold for them to think this. But what is the Lord's response? The Lord's response, look back down, verse 7. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? So the Levitical priests, they were in charge of the sacrificial system. So people would bring them 
livestock and they would sacrifice them. And they had very clear, clear, clear directions on what the Lord expected in this from the law. And just as as a summary, God expected the best of their flocks, the best fruit. Why? Because he owns everything. And part of their worship was to give the best of what they had to him. But the priests were not doing this. Not only were they accepting sacrifices that were less than what God says, but they were even letting the people do it. They were leading the people in corrupt worship to Yahweh. And it is obvious that they're that their worship for him, that this sacrificial system had just become just a half-hearted ritual. It was just a box to be checked. They had just something that, it's just what you do, and you know what? Hey, you got an animal, just give it to me. I don't care what it is. But yet, these animals were the worst of the worst. They were blind, they were lame. They were actually things that should have been culled out of the herd and destroyed. And this is what they're bringing to God as their sacrifice. And because of this, God says in verse 10, he says, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you, for from the rising of the sun even to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered in my name and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So for the sake of God's own name, his name must be honored. He simply says, I'm rejecting your offerings. He is not going to accept their worship. And these priests who sacrificed these blemished animals were dishonoring God. But once again, they were even leading others to do so. Their worship was corrupted before God. And because of that, because of who he is, he just simply says, I'm not going to accept this. I am not pleased with you. He is not pleased with their sacrifices. Now, this worship of them dishonoring God, this actually happened inside the temple, but it also happened outside the temple too. In chapter 2, verse 10, let me read it for you, but Micah proclaims, Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brothers, so that you profane the covenant of our fathers? So outside the temple, these, these Judeans were having relationships with one another where they were dealing, as, as what is said, treacherously with one another. They were treating each other wrongly. But not just that, he also specifically calls out how they were dealing with each other in marriage. They were profaning the covenant of marriage. And during this time, There were many men who were marrying foreign women, which was completely against the law. But it's not just that. They were actually divorcing their current wives for they could do this. Possibly for political influence, for money, we we don't know. But they were actually divorcing their wives and going after foreign women, which was completely against God's law. And at at chapter 2, at the end of verse 11, because of that, God says, I'll read it for you, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. So these broken relationships, especially when it comes to marriage, what they were doing, divorcing wives, marrying foreign women, he's saying that you coming in, having these relationships, coming into my temple, you are actually profaning my sanctuary. They were corrupting the temple. Their worship was corrupted inside and outside 
their corrupt lives were leading to corrupt, dishonoring worship of God. Their sacrifices were blemished. Their relationship, especially the covenant of marriage, was tarnished. And on top of that, that didn't even end there, but also Malachi calls out in chapter 3, verse 7, that they were also not paying tithes that was part of the law. Once again, God owned everything that they had. Everything that they had was the Lord's, and he had given them instructions of paying tithes to the temple, and yet they were rejecting that, and as he cries out in chapter 3, verse 7, you have robbed me. They, God looks at that as like, that's mine, and you're not giving it to me, and they're seeing that is something that does not belong to God. They're once again not giving him the honor that he deserves. They are rejecting him. And because of that, throughout this book, we see that curses are falling upon them because of that. And their rejection of God brought curses, but made their life worse. And yet they looked at God and said, it's your fault. You've let this happen. This is how corrupt their hearts had become against them. And, and as, as they say, as it reads in chapter 3, verse 13, I'll read it for you. Your words have become arrogant against me. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? And you have said, it is vain to serve God. So their conclusion to everything, this process of corrupted worship, how it was affecting them, God was not accepting their sacrifices, and they looked at that as, it's worthless, serve the Lord. It's vain. It's empty. Why even do it? Now, just as a summary of all these things, all these false views of God that they had, they had accused God of being unloving, unjust. They were profaning his sanctuary, his temple, with their corrupt offerings, their blemished animals, but even just these corrupt relationships, unlawful marriages that were, they were bringing into the temple, and they were rejecting the responsibility to play, pay tithes, and then they look at all this and they claim that there is no profit in serving the Lord. Every, this is extreme just indictment against them, their own hearts. And even though they were God's covenant people who had the law, they had everything they needed to be obedient to him, they despised God with high-handed rebellion and turned away from him and said, it's your fault. It's because of you. And looking at this grave condition of their souls, you would almost look at this and say that there is no hope for somebody like this. There is no hope for somebody that is so far gone in their sins. And they are so far corrupted in their treasonous behavior against the holy God. And yet, in the middle of all these accusations, the very heart of this book, the very heart of Malachi's message, completely surrounded by their sin, in chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, he writes this. Let me read it for you. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord does not change, and his loyalty to his covenant people had not changed. Despite all their treachery, he appeals to them, return to me. 
and I will return to you. He begs them for repentance to come back. What a testimony of God's patience and his love to allow wicked people who have, who have shouted out accusations to him to be able to return and come back to them. He begs them to come back. And the book of Malachi reveals how Judah's need for to repent, but also there's a theme of the motivation for repentance. And this leads to possibly the greatest theme of this book, and it is the appeal for repentance in light of coming judgment. The appeal for repentance in light of, co- co- of coming judgment. And God reveals that he is going to do something. He is preparing a day where there will be a separation from the unfaithful and the faithful, the wicked and the righteous. And as Malachi says in chapter 318, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So this will happen in a future event that Malachi calls the day of the Lord. And for, and this, and for some, this day is going to come as he writes in chapter 4, they will come like a burning furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will become chaffed and the day that is coming will set them ablaze. Says the Lord of hosts that there will be neither root nor branch. It's described as this all-consuming fire in which there is no escaping from. But yet, not everybody is going to have that experience And for the faithful, he writes, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip skip about like calves from a stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes underneath the soles of your feet on the day in which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. For those who are faithful, this will be a time of healing. It will be be a time of victory. And this will be a time that divides all of humanity from righteous and the wicked. So the very heart of this book is a, is a call to repentance. And here is the motivation because God is a God of justice. And he is going to bring that justice on the wicked. But also he is going to bless the righteous as a loving God. There is a day coming when the final judgment will be carried out and Judah's relationship with the Lord has been broken. But the Lord promises that one day he will judge the wicked and bless the righteous and those who are faithful to him, he is going to bless. In the light of this coming day and the time of Malachi's ministry, this was the call for repentance. It was God calling, this is what I'm going to do. Please return to me. And once again, it is only a loving and just God who does that, a patient God. So us today in the church, what do we do with this message? This was, there's a lot of distance between us and Malachi. So how do we apply it to our lives? So here's, so here's some takeaways. First takeaway take is, do not doubt the Lord's love and justice. Instead, look to Christ. We have a clear picture in our day of the love of God. Verse that many of you have memorized, our children have memorized, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you ever are questioning just due to your own circumstances, life is hard, life is crushing me, and you start to question the love of God, all we have to do is just look towards Christ. Look towards his son that he sent on our behalf, and there is no clear picture of the love of God. We should never doubt the love of God because we know what he has done for those who do not deserve his love. So if you find yourself discouraged, maybe even doubting the Lord's goodness, look towards Christ. And Christ is, he is our confidence in that we serve, we have a loving God. Second takeaway. Obedience to obedience to Christ's commandments is worship. Once again, Israel had the law. They had the commandments. And even the summary of this whole book in chapter 4, verse 4, is remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances in which I commanded him in Horeb of Israel. They had everything they needed. Now, we are not under that. We are under the new covenant, but we as followers of Christ, we are to keep his commandments. As Christ said in John fourteen fifteen to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He has not left us wondering how we need to live in obedience to him. We know what he expects and our love for him, because he's loved us, should be to live for his glory and to walk with him. We need to live in obedience to the Lord for what he has done for us. And third takeaway, we need to live with an anticipation of the Lord's return. Uh, Some of us men on Tuesday mornings were going through 1 Thessalonians. And 1 Thessalonians 4.10, it talks about how the Christians during that time, they were waiting for Christ. They were waiting with the anticipation of Christ coming back to save them from wrath. And our life as a Christian should be shaped in the present by what we know is coming in the future, that our Savior is coming back. As 1 John 2, 28-29 says, Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous you know that everyone who practices righteous is born of him. We need to live in a way that we are anticipating Christ and we look for him to come back. Not living in a way that we're terrified and would shrivel in shame at his coming. We want to live in a way that we await his coming, looking for the joy of our salvation that he brings to us. We have hope in his second coming. And that should affect our present life knowing what is going to happen in the future. Knowing that when he comes, he comes with the blessings of us as Christians, of us being saved from the wrath of God. And that should shape the way that we live now. Next, next takeaway. And this just kind of sums everything up. Now is the time for repentance. Whether you do not know Christ or whether even you are actually a Christian, if you do not know Christ, now is the time to repent of knowing what's coming. But even if you're a Christian, now is the time to live for his glory. It is the time to turn away from sins and live in obedience to him. 
wherever you're at, if there's sin in your life, now is the time of repentance. Now is the time to repent, knowing of who he is, what he has done for us, and what he is going to do for us. This is something that we do right now. In scripture, there is an urgent plea for repentance for us to turn back to God. Mark 1, 14-15 says, Now after John had been taken into custody, talking about John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was the very heart of the message of Christ, to believe in the good news of him and repent and follow him. And us today, as Christians, we need to have the right view of God. We need to have a high view of who he is and what he's done for us that should lead us to having the right worship of him and living life to his glory.